Welcome to All Shall Be Well, a conversation hosted by InterVarsity's Women in the Academy and Professions. Giving voice to women seeking to live fully into their God-given callings and be a redeeming influence, whether in the university or beyond. Thank you for joining us for All Shall Be Well, Conversations with Women in the Academy and Beyond. This is Caroline Trisick, and our guest for this episode is Donna Barber. Donna is the executive director and co-founder of The Voices Project, a national network that exists for the training and promotion of leaders of color. She has served as an educator, trainer, and coach for urban youth and urban youth program leaders for over 25 years. In 2019, she released her book, Bread for the Resistance, 40 Devotions for Justice People. In our conversation, we discuss how she has been able to discover and lean into God's calling for her own life and guides us toward how we might hear and embrace our own purpose as we seek Jesus. I'm so grateful for Donna as she points us back to Christ as the source of hope, no matter where we are in our journey. And I hope that you'll find this conversation as meaningful as I did. Thank you so much, Donna, for being with us today on the podcast. With most of our audience being women in academia, can you begin by sharing briefly a little bit about your educational background, as well as how that has influenced who you are today? Sure. So I was a, I am a product of Philadelphia public schools. I grew up in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and went to public school all my life. I grew up in the 70s at a time when our schools and my community, our our city was steeped in Black culture, in the celebration, in the expression of it. And so in a context that was knowledgeable of who I was and supportive of that. I went to a magnet high school for me I've with a focus on music at that time and then went to Temple University also in Philadelphia which okay. was a large you know university which for me was my first exposure to cultural differences because I had gone to a high school that was predominantly Black. I lived in a Black community, went to a a Black church. And so going to Temple was this first big exposure, even though I was in a very diverse city, it was a very neighborhood-based city. It was very separated in some ways still by race and culture. So going sure. to Temple University was the the first exposure to a more multicultural education, but still within the backdrop of my hometown. And then it wasn't until some years later when after my family and I moved to Atlanta, Georgia, that I uh, went back to school and went to grad school at Georgia State University there in Atlanta. And I was in the Urban Teacher Leadership Program, which again, had very strong Black leaders, deep historical, cultural knowledge for the educators, as well as the context of being in Atlanta with all this history of civil rights and Dr. King. It was both encouraging and it was challenging. And and for me, it was my first exposure then to Black academic thought leaders, Cornell West and Bell Hooks and Beverly Tatum and Lisa Delpit and other strong women. So I, I do feel like all of those experiences did a lot to shape who I am as a person today. In addition to your educational background, can you share a little bit about your spiritual background as well and your faith journey and how that has also shaped who you are? Sure. I grew up in a urban Black Baptist church in Southwest Philadelphia, which is Mount Zion Baptist Church. And that church, I was fortunate that there was a strong emphasis on leadership development. And at the time, I thought that that was just normal. This is what church was. And I realize now as an adult and after years being away from there, that we had a really unique, beautiful context to grow up in where people really gave, where the adults really gave us as young people room and opportunity to lead. 
and, mm-hmm. and to train us and not just to model before us, which they did, but to actually give us opportunity to in decision-making and setting program for the youth department ourselves. So that was a, a major thing. It was a place that emphasized education. We had a, a scholarship policy committee that gave out small college scholarships every year that any of the students at the church could apply for. Education was celebrated every year at graduation time. There was a big deal made in the morning worship service about all the students that were graduating from pre-K to grad Mm -hmm. school and gifts were given to them in front of the congregation. So um, that was very impactful for me. There was an emphasis on the study of scripture, some wonderful Bible teachers and preachers that came out of that church. Many pastors were produced from that church um, that went on to pastor at other churches. So I had opportunities to lead, exposure to history and encouragement and culture and a strong sense of familial relationships. So not mm-hmm. only was my my immediate family there, but there was the feeling that all of these people were my family. And it was a large church for that time. It was maybe close to a thousand people. And we only had one service. So it was a large sanctuary. Oh, wow. And But there was still, they still really did a really good job at making it feel like this was our family. You addressed adults as sister or brother Johnson or Smith or whatever. And and there was definitely the sense that any of the elders could correct you as a young person. And if you were doing something you weren't supposed to do, they were going to go talk to your parents and you were going to be in Mm -hmm. trouble again. Um, So it was... (laughs) Definitely that type of feel to it. And, and, and every part of the calendar was celebrated there in that church. And this was a time when the Black church was more like the community center of a neighborhood. So okay. yeah. there, you know, there was Christmas celebrations and Easter celebrations, yes, but there were also birthday celebrations. And sometimes people had their baby showers there and vacation Bible school in the summer. There were homecoming celebrations and church anniversaries and lots of big weddings and a lot of weddings where you had the wedding and the reception there at the church mm-hmm. and large funerals too you know like it was it was definitely the sense that this was my community and these were people who I knew who loved and cared for me and I loved and cared for them and this was a place of safety for me mm-hmm. That sounds like it was large, but also very connected and that, that your faith and, and even your education was nurtured in that community. So then fast forward to now, you are living in Portland. Can you share a little bit about your life now in Portland? Portland is very different <laughs> than either Philadelphia or Atlanta. Sure. When the decision was made to move here, and that was for my husband's job at the time, it was, it felt to us like moving to the other side of the world. We did not know anything about this part of the country. We literally, I had to get out a map for my kids and like put it on a dining <laughs> table and let's find where is Portland? Where is Oregon, first of all? Right. <laughs> like we, we had a general sense. We knew it was somewhere out west, <laughs> um, but where exactly is it? And then where is Portland? And And then moving here has felt like, yeah, we are, so far away and it's a beautiful area of the country definitely i mean to be able to see mountains and to be you know within an hour and a half of the ocean and and all that is great but yeah it is also it also rains eight nine months of the year Mm -hmm. um and is gray and cloudy after being in the southern sun that's an adjustment Mm -hmm. Um, And I think what's most challenging is, especially in light of coming from where we grew up, is that it, there's not for us that same sense of community here. The, the Northwest, I would say in general, feels like a very highly individualized culture. So whereas the word community is used and people refer to it, to us, it doesn't mean the same thing. 
there's much more pride in being independent and a strong individual and in, in you and your family. And so that definitely leaves, for me, maybe it's a little bit of an emptiness. It's not mm-hmm. the, the, the desire to be connected deeply to people in, in relationship. I don't feel it necessarily comes back to us in that same way. But people are nice and kind, but it's not necessarily a warm place, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So then you wrote this book, Bread for the Resistance, Mm -hmm. 40 Devotions for Justice People. And as you're sharing about sort of your value of community, the book brings in a lot of that. I think, Mm -hmm. I mean, you can share a little bit about what led you to write it. Who did you have in mind as your audience when you wrote it? And what are your hopes for the book? Well, I was led to write it. Um, I'd been encouraged by friends and family for a long time to write something. I used to lead a nonprofit in Atlanta and I did newsletters every month that I would send out. And, mm-hmm. you know, just one page newsletter and people at that time would always encourage me saying, oh, we so much enjoy your newsletters you should write, you should do a book or whatever. But um, I never had the interest in doing it. I didn't think that there was a need for it. I'll put mm-hmm. it like that. I felt like the world was filled with books. Sure. And what what was I going to say that necessitated one more? But then as I thought about it, I thought about what was most impactful for me has been devotionals in my life, my personal spiritual growth. Um, I had a couple of women who really emphasized to me the need for that daily devotional time, that quiet time with God. And that has made such a difference in my life personally. And once I reflected on that, I also thought about that. What I enjoy most is sitting down with people one-on-one over coffee or over lunch and having conversation and and listening to them, but also encouraging them. And for me, in our world, that tends to be people who are largely involved in the work of justice in some way and encouraging them to stay in it because it's hard and it's challenging and some days are discouraging. And so to have the opportunity to challenge people that is worth it, and to push them towards that, and to remind them that they can't do it without the power of God like that. Mm -hmm. I enjoy doing that all the time. And I said, that's the kind of book I could write. That's what I do in my life. And so to be able to put that on paper did not feel like it would be a grueling thing to me. It felt like it it was the right thing and a good thing and something I would enjoy. Mm -hmm. I wrote it for those people. And but also especially for people of color, because that I did not see us represented in this area because I enjoyed and needed that devotional in my life. I have often gone to Christian bookstores and looked for devotionals and rarely found anything that I wanted to purchase. Mm-hmm. Nothing that where I saw myself reflected back in its pages, in the subject matter, in the authors, on the covers. And I felt that it was important to offer something to my community, who was also very much in the work of justice and very much pursuing the spirit from my own experience. Yeah. And it's funny that you mentioned at the beginning about feeling like there were already so many books. Um, mm-hmm. Because even as I've hosted this podcast for like probably almost 18 months now, I'm getting sent books all the time of potential people to interview. And right. yours, yours came and there was something about it that was really compelling to me. Like, I want to talk to Donna Barber. I want to hear more <laughs> about what she has to say. Even in the title, the idea of bread and sustenance for people who are seeking justice, which is hard work, mm-hmm. uh, but also that idea of connecting with Jesus And then just having different voices than the ones that are, I would say, always kind of 
highlighted. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Highlighted. Good word. That's exactly the word I'm looking for. So I'm mm-hmm. grateful for your voice. I was grateful for the book and I'm curious about your thoughts then on that relationship between activism or justice work and spiritual formation. Cause mm-hmm. it seems like there's often that urgency and a great deal of energy in justice work, but also people that might tend to burn out quickly. How would you say spiritual formation or one's relationship with Jesus on an individual or communal level even informs activism? Yeah. Well, I think for the believer, faith is the motivation and the driver and the sustainer of activism. And activism is the outworking of love and faith. Like it is the reason why we do what we do and it is the source that allows us to be able to do it. My faith is, I cannot separate that from the work and the call and the mission that I have. I could not do what I do without that. So for years, I worked with urban youth, whether that was in Philadelphia or Atlanta or Portland and especially in the area of leadership development among urban youth and getting to know kids who are living in some cases in very hard contexts in challenging circumstances and helping them to discover who they are and finding their sense of purpose and encouraging them to pursue that when everything around them tells them they are nothing and they are really limited in the resources that are available. It's sometimes two steps forward, one step back for years. Mm -hmm. And to be able to get up and to keep doing that and to keep doing that and to believe that without necessarily a lot of positive feedback that what you're doing makes a difference and it's changing somebody's life one day at a time. Like I need to have the faith of God and the power of the spirit Mm. to continue to do that. The scripture is filled with instruction to us to do good, to Mm -hmm. love like as an action verb. And, And love is more than passing out food to the hungry. It is, it's also like addressing the causes of the hunger and the obstacles to people being fed. Like those are the problems we're seeking to solve and the structures in some cases we're trying to tear down that we need supernatural power to do that. And we have to do that. I I guess I don't see in my faith where I have the option to opt out. So, so Jesus didn't feed, Jesus didn't feed the multitude. He blessed the resources and instructed the disciples to do it. Mm -hmm. Jesus has instructed us to feed people, to clothe people, to care for the sick, to visit people in prison. He has given us this work to do. And yet it is a work that is too big for us. Right. And so we need to have the power of the spirit and the word of God to empower and inform what it is we do to allow us to be successful in it. So he called Lazarus from the dead, but he told his disciples to loose him and let him go. Mm -hmm. He is sending us into dead places to loose people. We can't do that using just our intellect you know, or our our connections or because we're so talented or we went to this university or that school. That is not enough. It takes faith to be able to continue the work every day in the same way that it took faith to take pitchers of water out to serve the guest at that wedding and to walk into a hungry crowd with crumbs and scraps or, Mm. or towards a moving mummy coming out of a tomb. But all of these disciples, they did those things at the word, the command of Christ, and they did it in obedience to him. And they're going and doing it, even when they didn't know what was going to happen. They didn't know that when they poured out what they thought was water, it was going to be wine. 
they didn't know that when they got to the people with those baskets, they they were going to be filled with fish and bread. They just Mm -hmm. started walking because Jesus told them to do it. And their decision to take those steps was evidence of their faith. In the Mm -hmm. same way, when we act, we go out to serve, to address the needs in our communities, we are demonstrating the faith that we claim that we have. I don't know how else we do that. Like James said, without the work, the faith is dead. And yet we can't do the work without the faith. (laughs) So I see them as inextricably connected. Right. So the faithfulness, but you can't have the faithfulness without the spirit working through you. Yes. You can't demonstrate the faith unless you do the work. So, you know, and the work of justice is God's work. Mm-hmm. To try to do God's work without God's power is is short-lived and foolish and arrogant. You know, it requires a level of effort and endurance and personal sacrifice that cannot be sustained in our flesh. And mm-hmm. And so people do burn out, as you said, because they're trying to do it based on just how wonderful they think they are, you know, or how much they think they know or how much they think they have rather in full reliance upon God. And full reliance upon God requires this daily coming before his feet, falling at his feet and asking to be filled again and again. And lasting change in areas of systemic oppression, like mass incarceration and Mm -hmm. immigration and racism and healthcare, that involves addressing entrenched systemic evil, Mm. principalities, powers, rulers of darkness, spiritual wickedness. And to do that, it requires the power of God. Yeah, absolutely. And I appreciate that you even mentioned, you know, we can't do this out of our own intellect or our own knowledge or strength. Mm -hmm. And I feel like, so most of our audience is women in academia many of us, there's so much freedom in knowing that it doesn't depend on my intellect, my ability to perform, but it's out of the the spirit working through us. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious to, if you have advice or thoughts for people who are interested in injustice work, but aren't sure where to start, or maybe they don't think that they have time, right? So maybe some of us are moms and we're like, you know, just trying to make it through with the kids and also ju- right. juggling the career. But I know that you have six children, so you can speak <laughs> to that. Right. Uh, but yeah, just thoughts on like justice work that's maybe not full-time vocation, if that makes sense. Well, Matthew says that Jesus looked on the multitude and was moved with compassion. So I always ask people when they're trying to figure out what is it that I can do or I want to do or I'm called to do is what moves you? What causes you to ache in your gut? And then praying and asking God, what would you have me to do, Lord, with Mm -hmm. this thing? You know, because usually there's, it's not everything that we feel that way about. But there's some particular area, some general area that we feel particularly drawn to or have compassion for a particular group of people and always feel drawn to stories, whether that's in the news or personal sharing from people about first identifying, you know, what is it that I am moved by? And then what unique gifts and talents or abilities or experiences have I been given to address that? And then looking for where can I plug into somewhere that this is already happening. So here's, if I have a passion for education for children in the urban context, and I feel that I have a particular set of skills or gifts or experiences that could be used to support work in that area, where in my neighborhood or my church or in the sphere of influence that I have, could I jump into where that work is already going on? I don't have to start my own thing. You know, right. I can look for where people are already doing good work in that area and offer to help. 
you know, and if I happen to be a person of privilege or resource, which a lot of us, if we've had the opportunity to have higher education, we are Mm -hmm. in some way, then I have to also make sure that I talk to the people that are most impacted by the thing that I'm most concerned about Mm -hmm. and ask them what they think is needed. And then look for local community leaders who are doing it and ask how you can serve. And it may be, you know, well, I have two hours a week that I can spare. I'm going to go and offer those two hours to that organization in that neighborhood to do whatever it is they need me to do, right? I've sometimes challenged people to think about committing to donating a tithe of your time or your services. Because we we like to think about we can give a tithe of our money. Mm-hmm. But what if everyone in Christendom, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. gave a tithe of their time or their service? So you could be anything. If you're a barber, you could say, well, I'm going to give 10% of my time in the shop this week to where I give away free haircuts to either the homeless or children or people who may not otherwise be able to afford this or that is a way of serving or if you are a teacher i'm going to give away 10% of my time or is that value in service to tutoring someone for free those are like practical little ways that i can decide to begin in this service I'm going to offer consulting services to a nonprofit, a small nonprofit that's serving a community that I'm particularly passionate about or where there is particular need, especially those that are led by women or led by people of color. I'm going Mm -hmm. to offer this many hours a month to that service in consultation for free. You know, I I have a degree in economics and I'm going to offer these services to this organization. There are often scores of small nonprofits who are doing great work that people don't know about. And we instead give all our money and resources to, you know, the Boys and Girls Clubs of America or, you know, the American Cancer Society. Not that there's anything wrong with those organizations. They're doing great things. But there's a lot of local, smaller organizations that are doing good stuff and no one is supporting them. Sure, and that's yeah. a way for people, especially as we, we're talking about women in academia, professional women, to, where they can go and plug in and be of service in really meaningful ways. Thanks. Yeah. And I appreciate, too, that you highlighted finding out what the need is rather than just like assuming that you know what the need is coming in and finding out and learning first rather than just coming in and offering things that people maybe don't need. Absolutely. Asking the community, what is it you need? And then look for who is doing that type of work and then offer your services there. I think that's important. Yeah, thanks. That's really helpful. Also, you mentioned earlier about sort of the systemic injustice, racism. I mean, our country is built on systemic racism, honestly, right? And so mm-hmm. I'm curious, I know I know you mentioned, right, like obviously we need to pray, mm-hmm. but on a practical level for particularly women in higher education, how might we integrate justice work and sort of the on the systematic level into our daily life? I don't know if that question makes sense mm-hmm. or if it even has an answer. But Yeah, no, I, I, I think I understand what you're saying. I, I think, again, it doesn't have to be complicated. People of influence or resource can look for where have voices been left out, mm. where are stories untold, and work to make room or to give access for those people and those stories and to shine lights in those areas. If you work at a university, who's not represented at the table? Who hasn't been asked or considered in the decision-making that goes on at that university or whatever the company or organization may be? 
make or highlight connections between faith and justice where people may be overlooking them. In other words, like King was not only a charismatic activist, Mm -hmm. right? Dr. King was a Black Baptist pastor and he was an academic. And sometimes we want to separate him from those other parts of who he was. But rather than acknowledge that all of that is who he was and all of that was significant. And in fact, his work and activism came out of his faith and his work as a Black preacher, right? Right, right. And those two things were intertwined. As we begin to notice deliberately those connections, then we can help other people notice those connections and, and look in our own lives to integrate them more intentionally. Um, offer your expertise to churches and nonprofits. I have this passion about justice. How can I bring that to the table at my church? How can I encourage the leaders of my church in this area or to address this area in our community or in our city? Looking to intentionally make those connections in our own daily lives and then helping the organizations and churches and occupations that we're part of make the connections as well. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's helpful. So then shifting back to the spiritual formation aspect of daily life, the book obviously is designed as a 40 day, you're not to read it all in one sitting, right? um, but (laughs) though that's what I did, (laughs) whatever. Anyway, all that to say, I'm confession is I'm terrible at like daily routines uh, and I wish that I could be better, but this isn't my time for confession, but you design it right as a 40 day thing. And and we're coming up on Lent then, which Mm -hmm. would be kind of a great way to integrate this into that season, that liturgical season to grow closer to Jesus, kind of to clarify your purpose and calling in justice and evangelism. What are the, some of the some of the daily routines that you have in your life that help you stay connected to Jesus and cultivate the fruit of your relationship with him? So I practice a daily devotional time, usually every morning. I try to make it the first thing that I do, and I'm very intentional about that in that I have my Bible with a journal and pen and everything right next to my bed. So I literally Mm -hmm. don't even have to get out of bed to get it. Because, you know, as soon as we do one thing, then we can easily be pulled off into a whole nother set of activities. And then we realize, oh, wow, it's too late now. I got to go. So I try to make it as easy and accessible as possible. So I have everything that I need right next to my bed. I spend time reading scripture, praying in solitude and silence. Wait, hold on. How how do you have solitude and silence with six children? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, at this point, most, so three of my kids are adults. Um, Okay. Two of my sons live in Atlanta and starting their own families. And then the other kids that are here, they are old enough to, you know, I don't have to feed or dress or, or get <laughs> sure. them out to school. They, they can do that. But even when they were younger, it was still, okay, get them out to school and then have this okay. time. And making, making that a priority, I guess, is the thing. And, but I really do believe we need to have places of quiet Mm-hmm. in order to hear God. And because relationship and communication that is only one way is not real relationship or communication. If I'm, I was a communications major in, in undergrad and, you know, mm-hmm. it's a communication has not been completed if you just send a message and there's no response, right? <laughs> so right. we often are spending time talking to God, but not listening to God. And Mm -hmm. so solitude, sometimes it's in my car that I feel that I'm going to turn the radio off. Mm -hmm. You know, there doesn't have to be constant talking music or sound because sometimes God is trying to speak to us and we're just missing it Mm -hmm. because our minds are so distracted and so full of so many other things. So I do try to have a quiet space in order 
to read and to pray and to sit in stillness and listen. Having the journal is real important because then when God does speak, when I, sometimes you can read a scripture that you've read a thousand times before. Mm -hmm. And this particular day, there's a different word that jumps out to you that you've never noticed before or thought about in that way. And I'm going to write that down and I'm going to jot down notes about my thoughts about that. And this new thing that I think God is saying. Sometimes I might draw a picture that helps me to remember a thought or an idea. And in fact, the bread for the resistance came from those journals, Mm -hmm. just going through and pulling out where I saw themes over many days. And those themes became the sections of the book. And then taking the different scriptures and notes that I had made that turned into that devotional personal worship, having time to just to sing songs, to listen to songs, to sing songs back to God. That's all part of my daily devotional practice. Some new things that I'm trying to implement this year is like quarterly having a one day personal retreat where um, I found a monastery that's within an hour's drive of my home and just getting up like the a Saturday or Monday morning, driving out there and spending the day in just some quiet prayer and reflection and scripture reading. And the last time when I went in January for the first time, I ended up having during they served lunch there, having a wonderful conversation with one of the priests that was okay. there during lunch, and then going back for just some more um, quiet time, but really using those days as to give the opportunity to s- sit in reflection about where I'm going in the next quarter of the mm-hmm. year mm-hmm. and the things that I feel that I'm supposed to do. And then occasionally other contemplative activities. I like labyrinths. There's a place in our city called the Grotto that has a brick labyrinth that I like to go and walk through. I've heard that one of the convents nearby has one as well. I'm waiting till the weather is a little bit better (laughs) to Mm, go and find that one. Also practicing some meditations and occasionally fasting. I I think that all of those things still have great meaning and power. And I like to, to try them or to implement them at different times. Yeah. Thank you for sharing about some of those practices. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting that you brought up labyrinths. I'm remembering, I think it was one of my classes I took in grad school, uh, spiritual formation in counseling, where we were, one of the assignments was to look up, I think, where different labyrinths were nearby. There's like mm-hmm. a website, I think, I don't know if it's called Labyrinth Finder or something, but um, <laughs> that, I, that's a guess. I'll, I'll find out what it really is and put it in the mm-hmm. show notes. But if people are interested in looking for those, they're all over the place. So yes, it forces you to slow down. Right. And to be disciplined and patient just to keep walking. Because mm-hmm. everything, everything in you, at least for me, when I first start, wants to quit and, and say, okay, I'm just going to, and walk out, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just winding back and forth, like seemingly for no purpose, going nowhere. Right, right. When everything wants to stop and then, but to persist and to breathe and to ask God what it is he wants to say. You know, mm-hmm. what am I need to think about and reflect on? And to stick with it until you, till that urge to quit goes away. Mm-hmm. And it just becomes soothing and relaxing and peaceful and calm. And then you're winding your way back out. And mm-hmm. I, I really enjoy it. Nice. Yeah, and as you mentioned before, the book is split up into different sections. And each of those parts includes a QR code to a song by Urban Doxology, which I really appreciated. And you mentioned again just a little bit ago too about music being part of your daily times. Can you say a little bit about including those songs as part of the devotional structure of this book? Yes, I was really excited to be able to do that. I have enjoyed the music and the ministry of Urban Doxology for years. They are 
a wonderful group of musicians. And we, for a few years, I am executive director of the Voices Project and had one of the things, one of the initiatives of the Voices Project was for a few years, we did a college tour of the historic black colleges and universities. And Urban Doxology came with us on that tour. And we would go from, you know, college to college over a week and they would sing And it was just always so beautiful and inspiring and encouraging. And so I love their music and I've always wanted a way to make more people aware of who they were. And it's always been such a source of encouragement to me. So I think about my devotional life and I think music is a part of that. How do I share that in this book? And the idea came because I was the director of a another program here in Portland called Champions Academy. And I hired a teacher one year who submitted a resume that had a QR code on it. Oh. And hmm. when you scanned her QR code, it opened up a video of her teaching in her classroom. No kidding. And That's I thought, idea. this is the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> so yeah. I was like, I'm going to use that for something. I knew that. And mm-hmm. I just kind of tucked it away in my mind. But so when I got ready to do the book and I was thinking about the music, I said, I wonder if she could do that with a video. Could we do that just with music in mm-hmm. the book? And so I contacted David Bailey, who's the producer of Urban Doxology. And say, hey, David, I have this idea. Do you think we can make this happen? And he contacted the person that he works with, who is the tech person, um, Chip. And we went back and forth on it for a while. And they came up with a way to get it done. And it ended up working. And David picked the songs. What I did was send Mm -hmm. him, here are the sections, you know, the title sections of my book. And this is what they're about. And he sent back his suggestions of which songs he Mm -hmm. thought would be best, you know, for those. And I listened to those and I may have just moved them around a little bit, you know, put different ones in different sections. But pretty much I went with the ones that he chose. And that's how they ended up in the book. Well, I loved it. So hopefully others will as well. But I always, I do find that I hear from God often through music. So mm-hmm. I really appreciated that, that aspect of it in addition to being in the scripture and reading your words. Yes. So, yeah. So shifting gears a little bit, your bio includes being the first African-American to serve on your local district's school board. Mm-hmm. Can you share about the significance of that role to you? I feel deeply blessed and privileged by the opportunity. Humbled, of course, to be the first of Mm -hmm. anything, um, especially in this particular case. It's been very satisfying to have this opportunity and to serve in this way. I have been passionate about education and um, urban education and kids for all my life and never though imagined that I would have the opportunity to influence policy Mm. in education at this level in this way. And so to have that opportunity is really a joy to me. It is long meetings. (laughs) I bet. um, More meetings probably than I realized when I first (laughs) considered it. But still, I really do feel like, wow, I get to do this. I get to talk to the superintendent of schools, you know, um, in my district and sit down with him for coffee and share, you know, this is what, these are my concerns and, and to have him listen to that and to sit on the board with other people who I greatly respect and to work together towards making our district a more equitable and Mm -hmm. caring and safe place for kids. Like that's the best thing in the world to me. I happen to be in a district that has the most diverse high school in a very white state. Um, And so I really do feel the weight of that. And I feel like we have the responsibility, but also the opportunity to do something really significant here 
that if we can create an education system that more justly serves all children here Mm -hmm. in the whitest state in the country, then there's no excuse for any anywhere else that Mm -hmm. we can we have the opportunity, the possibility of doing something that can impact children all over the country for years Mm -hmm. to come. And that's the way I approach it each day and hopefully can do something of value for the kingdom, you know, through this opportunity. Yeah. And as you shared about the responsibility and opportunity of that role, I hear Mm -hmm. a lot of hope in your voice. Where do you find hope these days? Definitely in the word of God and his promises in the, the reality of his sovereignty and his power and his faithfulness that despite what I see or hear on any given day, that Mm -hmm. the truth is that God is still sovereign, that he is all powerful and that he is faithful. My friend Alexia Salvatierra often says, how about we live as if the word of God is true and Jesus is risen? And, Mm -hmm. And holding on to that, like, yeah, I believe the word is true and Jesus is alive. So therefore there is hope. Um, Mm -hmm. No matter what we see, we are often deceived by our eyes and what we're told, whether that's through politicians or the media, but God is true. And so I find hope in that and that he will never leave or forsake us, that things are working together for our good and that he is able to keep what I've committed to him and that my hope will not make me ashamed. Like Mm -hmm. those promises I hold on to as truth and expect then that God is at work and doing something, whether or not I know all the time exactly what it is. I believe in that. Yeah, and the line, hope will not make me ashamed. Yes. Love that. And that's Mm -hmm. that's from Romans, am I right? I believe so. (laughs) Yeah, I'm just trying to remember my scripture. Uh More specifically, what is your hope for this generation of women? I would hope that they come to know God and know themselves as a result of that, to know that they were created, they are created in the expressed image of the Most High for good that God sings and rejoices over them and has gifted them and included them in leadership for his glory. That they might realize that they have a responsibility to fulfill the unique purposes for which they were created. That they are daughters of Zion and Mm -hmm. do not need to fade into the background because they stand next to a son, because they stand next to a man. I think many times unintentionally, and maybe in some cases intentionally, that is the message that is given to women mm-hmm. in our churches. That once we, you know, our whole purpose is to stand next to or behind, in, in a lot of cases, a mm-hmm. man, and to just be there to hold the coat or, you know, mm-hmm. kind of metaphorically. And rather than that, God had something in mind for his daughters and that we were created in his image as well to fulfill his plans and purposes for the world. And that that plan cannot be done without us because that is the design of God. And I would hope that, that the women really embrace that truth and look for with expectation, what is it that God would have for me to do? And that's going to look different for every woman in every place, but that there is a a purpose for our lives that means something in the kingdom of God. That's a good word for us. So thank you so much. Mm -hmm. And then finally, we like to conclude the podcast with the same question to all of our guests. Is there a particular quote, scripture, or song, or other set of words that have been meaningful to you lately? And can you share about why it resonates with you at this time? Yeah, I would say 
One, I many times have shared with people some years ago hearing an interview of Oprah Winfrey, and I think it was when she was ending her daily show on television Mm -hmm. and people were expecting, you know, asking her about was she going to retire? And what I recall her, her response being something like she was going to continue working because eventually she was going to have to stand before God. And when she did, she wanted to have nothing left that she had used up every possible thing that he had given her and done the most with it for her entire life. And I remember being so struck by that and feeling like, yes, that's what I want. When I get to the end of my life, I want to have used everything that God has given me and have nothing left. And so that has always stuck with me. Most recently, since the publishing of Bread, there's a song called Fill Me Up by KCJ. And that has really been something that has stuck with me. Because when I started thinking about having to go and to talk about bread, like it was one thing to write the book mm-hmm. and, you know, edit and go through that process. But then the thought of having to go out and talk about it, <laughs> like <laughs> I wanted somebody else to go talk about it. And my husband's <laughs> like, no, 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 that's, you, that's part of the author's thing. And I was like... But I'm basically an, an introvert. And okay. so the thought of, oh, I got to go out and stand in front of people and talk about what I wrote, my words, in a way, was a scary thing. But I was praying about that one morning and the words started coming into my mind, fill me up, Lord, fill me up, Lord. And I was like, I know I've heard that somewhere. What is this? So I Googled it and this song comes up on YouTube. And the first line is, you provide the fire, I'll provide the sacrifice. Mm. And it just really moved me. Like I just started crying and I started thinking that that's what God was asking. He's like, if you offer yourself up, I'm going to give you the fire. I'm going to give you what you need to do this thing. But I need you to be willing to put yourself out there. In my mind, it's like putting myself on that altar. Mm -hmm. And so committing to asking God to commit to filling me up so that I can keep pouring out. And I feel like I've been so blessed. I don't want to hold anything back from him. Mm. I want to willingly be that living sacrifice that Romans refers to and providing light and flame to the world. I want, you know, God's fire in me to allow that to happen. And so that song has been something that I keep going back to. You provide the fire, Lord, I'll provide the sacrifice and hoping that the spirit gives me the courage to keep climbing on the altar every day. Well, I so appreciate your example of offering your life and your words to the Lord and his work. So thanks so much, Donna, for your encouragement and spending time with us for this episode. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you for joining us for this episode of All Shall Be Well. Conversations with Women in the Academy and Beyond. This is Caroline Trissick, and information about our guests can be found on our podcast page at thewell.intervarsity.org podcasts. This has been a production of Women in the Academy and Professions, a focused ministry initiative of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship USA. We value the contribution of podcast guests who are not employed by InterVarsity, and we acknowledge that the opinions of our guests may or may not represent the ministry, doctrine, or policies of InterVarsity. Thank you for joining our conversation as we engage in faith and life together. We'd love to hear your feedback. To share your thoughts or to learn more about who we are or the resources and connections we provide, we invite you to visit us at our online gathering place, The Well. You can find us at thewell.intervarsity.org.